group back there, so while they all exit, if you would stand up and greet one another tonight, and then we'll get into our study tonight. All right. Well, that was a treat. What a blessing. All right. If you would open your Bibles up with me to Genesis chapter 38. I fully intended to get through chapter 38 last week, but time didn't permit. So we are going to get through this uh, to start our study this week. Genesis 38, as you're going to see, is... Kind of, it seems almost out of place because as we leave, left off last week, Genesis 37, Joseph is on his way to Egypt uh, to be sold into slavery there. And when we get to 39, he's in, he's in Egypt uh, being purchased as a slave. So there, does, there seems to be all of a sudden this, this chapter stuck in here. And the reason it is is because this chapter takes place after uh, 30, 37, if you would, after 37, but before we get to the end of 40 and on into there. So this kind of runs you know, an equal time frame before we get to chapter 40, 41. So let's take a look real quickly, and we'll read through most of it. I'm just going to touch a couple of things as we, as we go through. Verse 38, And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. One point I want to make as we move on from here. It's always, always, always a bad idea to depart from your brothers and sisters. If we get out on our own, we are in huge trouble. Lone sheep don't survive very long out in the real world, out in the wilderness. We need to stick together. We need to stay together. And we see here one of the brothers, Judah, even though... We have seen, and we're going to see some more, this group of brothers that he's around are far from perfect. They need to be together. And we, as Christians, need to be together, brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, strengthening one another. Well, Judah goes out on his own. Verse 2, Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was Chizib, was at Chizib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, the secondborn, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother." This was a common custom back in the time. Older brother is, is, is married, and he dies before he can have children. It was the responsibility, the duty of the next oldest son, if he was not already married, to take on his widow as a wife in order to have children to carry on his older brother's name. That was the whole point. The, again, we've talked about this as we've gone through Genesis. The oldest brother having the, the birthright and all of the, these privileges that came along with it, the name needed to be carried on through the oldest son, or that's the desire. So that's the point here is the next oldest, his responsibility, his duty to, was to come along and t- keep that, continue that going. Well, Onan, verse 9, knew that the offspring would not be his. They would be considered his brother's. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. This is the sin of Onan. Selfishness, pride, and basically a disdain for his older brother that I am not going to continue on his line. Verse 10, it says, But when he, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life also. Verse 11, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, the youngest. 
And for he thought, I'm afraid that he too will die like his brothers. So you go away, stay with your dad for a little while, and we'll wait until the youngest grows up and obviously has no intention of continuing that on. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning had ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers in Timnah, he and his friend Hira and the Adulamite. Now it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat at the gateway of Aeneum, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and that she had not been given to him as a wife. So she figured out, this isn't ever going to happen. He told me I was going to get to marry the youngest son and could be able to continue that, but he's obviously not going to do that. He's forgotten me, he's pushed me off to the side, and I'm going to stay here. So verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought that she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So, she, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give to me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your card and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of the place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who's, who was by the road at Aeneum? But they said to her, or they said to him, There has been no temple prostitute here. Uh-oh. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Verse 23, Then Judah said, let her keep them, otherwise we will become the laugh, a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. She's pregnant. She's supposed to be stuck away. She's supposed to be waiting for my son. Now she's pregnant. Bring her out. She needs to be dealt with publicly. She needs to be executed. Let her be burned. Verse 25, it was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her my son, Sheila. And he did not have relations with her again. Comes face to face with the problem. Problem he created. A problem that he created by not following through on his word, but then he created by going along this whole thing. Again, this hypocrisy that he goes into a harlot, then his, this daughter-in-law supposedly plays the harlot, now he's upset with that and going to have her executed. His... his uh, uh, lack of morals, he's not questioning whatsoever hers, but when he's brought face to face with it, he doesn't hide it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to cover it up. He had every right to do that. He could have done that, but he was convicted in his heart, and he confessed. He, he repented. He, she is more righteous than I am, basically saying, I was wrong. She, she, is, she did what she needed to do, to open my eyes to what's going on, and basically saying, now let God deal with this as he sees fit. Verse 27, it came about at the time that she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took the hand and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But it came about as he drew his hand back, and behold, his brother came out. Then she said, what a breach you have made of yourself. So she named him Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. Wow. What a story. And again, I, I, gotta, I, I look through this and I say, what application can we possibly draw for ourselves individually, personally, from a story like this other than don't do that? There's, 
the, when it comes to application, I guess I don't see anything other than, again, a lot of things to avoid, going maybe all the way back to the beginning. We don't go out on our own. We can't, we can't survive on our own. We need each other as brothers and sisters. But if you would turn to Ruth chapter 4, a few chapters over to the right. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Amazing story. I would, I would encourage you as homework this week, even tonight. It's not long. Read the book of Ruth. But, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez, the firstborn that we just read about. These are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab. And Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz, the hero of the book of Ruth. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. Yes, that David. King David. And we see, and when we look in Matthew and Luke's account as the, the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus, Perez is named in both of them. God takes this incredibly messed up story and and does something amazing with it. <laughs> what a glorious example of the incredible grace of God. I mean, this happens in spite of all of this mess. Not because they did anything to deserve it. In spite of all of this, God used it for his good, for his glory. And I think that's something that we can all take away from it. We probably don't have stories like this, hopefully, in our past. But we all know that we've fallen short of what God has expected of us. We all know that we've fallen short of what God has called us to. Yet he can still do amazing things in and through us. And that, I think, is a takeaway from chapter 38. Well, chapter 39, we come back to the story of Joseph. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in, the, in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessings was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food which he ate. We're introduced to a, a new character in, in this story now, Potiphar. It says that he is an officer of Pharaoh, a direct report to Pharaoh, somebody who's immediately involved all the time with Pharaoh. This word officer that's used here, and the, it's just an interesting side note. I don't know that it plays any further part in the story. It sure could. But the word is often used to refer to a eunuch. And it was often, it was often practiced back then that somebody that close to the king continually was a eunuch. So that's what that word can also mean. But it also refers to him as the captain of the bodyguard. Now, this man would have been in charge of prisons, and we're going to see that coming up, as well as executions. Very powerful man, very, very important man in the political structure of the time. It tells us in just these few verses that the Lord was with Joseph, that he blessed Joseph. He blessed everything that Joseph did that he gave him incredible favor. It says in verse, five, verse four, the Lord found, or Joseph found favor in his sight. God continually blessed Joseph. God never left Joseph, regardless of how things seemed. And again, we talked about this last time. Joseph had to be wondering, what's going on? I, I, I see this calling on my life, and here I am headed down, and now I'm sold into slavery. What is going on? But God's hand never left Joseph. As a matter of fact, Verse 2 says that he became a successful man. Now that word successful means prosperous, even profitable. 
Now, if we examine the situation with, with Joseph in, in, his, in his current situation, is he prospering? I mean, none of this is going to him. It's all going to Potiphar. Is he becoming profitable for Potiphar if we look at it from a world's perspective? But if we look at it from an attitude perspective, if we look at it as we would if we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes and we see how he reacts and how he responds, we can see how he is prosperous, how he is profitable. When we match up his attitude and his reaction to things with verses like Psalm 84.10 that says, Lord, it's better in one day in your house than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be in your presence, God, here in this slavery situation than anywhere else without you. If you'll remember when we went through the book of 1 Timothy, when Paul wrote to 1 Timothy, he said, godliness plus contentment is great gain. We never see, and I talked about this last time, anywhere recorded that Joseph is complaining. There's one verse coming up that it might seem like he might be, but he's just explaining his situation, not complaining. Not recorded one time that he's got a negative or bad attitude. A very godly character. And again, I can't help but think that he might, he might not say that, hey, I wish I was here rather than anywhere else in this, in this situation or in prison, but God, if this is where you have me, I don't want to be anywhere else. I'm content right here, as Paul was. Chuck Swindoll said, the longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. Joseph had an amazing attitude, and God blessed it. And it was noticed. Look, verse 3, it says that the, that the master saw that the Lord was with him. He saw this. He, Potiphar noticed. Does the world around us, and this is just one of those individual self uh, reflective type questions. Does the world around us, does the world around you see Christ in you? Do they see Christ in you when, when things aren't going real well? When, when at work, when, when the bad news comes, do they see Christ in you? No matter what happens? I think, I think the worst thing that we could ever hear from, from our neighbors or from our people that we work with, I think one of the worst things that we could ever hear that should cut us right to the heart is, oh, I didn't know you were a Christian. It should be obvious. It should be evident. It should be seen in us. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light so shine. And light shines brightest when it's the darkest out. And obviously, you can't get much darker than Egypt at this time. Joseph's the only light there. It's a dark, dark place, and people notice. People see it. But what if you're persecuted for it? What if you, you're, you're at work and you're shining for God, but the people around you don't take it kindly? You're not even being rewarded by your boss. You're not, you're not like Joseph in this situation. What then? Well, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The Bible tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors. Remember, we talked about this this last weekend. We're not of this world. This is not our home. We are here, and we are left here to be Christ's ambassadors. We are to be making an appeal to this dark and dying world to be reconciled to God. And it starts with our attitude and how, and they have to see Christ in us. We have to give them a reason to want to know. And then we share with them what we do know. We see Joseph, continually, and we're going to see this played out in our story, he's an honest man. He's a man of integrity. He's faithful. And we, as em employees out in the workplace, we need to emulate that. We need to be hard workers. We need to be honest. We need to be faithful. Not this holier-than-thou kind of attitude, but working hard. It says here in our story that Joseph, in this situation, was placed in charge of everything. 
Now again, I have to think that when Joseph set out into his work that as for Potiphar, that wasn't his goal. That wasn't what he was, he was hoping to get promoted through the ranks to be top dog. That probably was the furthest thing from his mind. He just knew that he needed to honor God with what he was doing. The promotions and, and the, the raises that, that, that we get in the workplace should be just icing on the cake. That's the bonus. It should never be our main motivation for what we do. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We should be working for the reward of our inheritance. The Bible talks continually about the rewards that we will get in heaven, the crowns we will receive. What are they? I don't know. I don't know what those are, but one thing I can promise you, when we see what they finally are, when we understand what the rewards finally are, they will be so far above anything that you ever imagined, anything that you've ever worked for here on earth. You're going to be thinking, man, I wish I'd have worked harder for that. <laughs> you will not regret one moment spent earning those rewards. But, you know, when we get there, it's going to be too late to do anything more about it. And that should be our motivation continually, that reward. Standing in front of our Lord, I think part of that great reward is to stand before him and have him say to us, well done, well done. Having a good testimony. What a, what a great thing we see here. Well, verse 7, our text, it says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, looked with desire at Joseph. And she said to him, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold with me, behold with me here. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put me, put all that he owns in my charge. There is no greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a great and evil sin against God? So she spoke to G Joseph day after day, and he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or be with her. Joseph, young man, he gets here, he's 17 years old. Young man, temptation, Potiphar, his, his boss is gone a lot. He's, he's on official business often. He's away. He's in charge. He could send the other workers, the other servants out. He could go through and probably make up a whole bunch of things in his mind. I mean, he didn't, again, he didn't have some real good role models with his brothers. He could have justified in his mind, man, I've been dealt a real lousy hand. Why, in life, why am I continuing to try to play this right I, can, I, can, I could get away with this. No one would ever know. Well, one thing trumped everything else. All of the other thoughts and temptations that may have come, everything else was trumped by the fact that he knew that it was against God's will. He knew that it was sin if he would, fall, if he would follow that temptation. How did he know? The law hadn't been given to Moses yet. Well, Romans chapter 2 tells us that God's will, his law is written on our hearts. Everyone. And we today have God's written word, and we also have the Holy Spirit within us. We have a plethora of rationalization that we can use in our lives. You know, this merchandise is way overpriced anyway, so this, they overpaid me in my change, and I'll just keep it. I mean, they're, they're a profitable company. I pay, I, I'm, I shop here all the time. I can keep this. That person's been mean to me. They've, they've, they've said bad things about me. So I'm going to join in in this conversation about them. I can justify that. I don't like the way the government spends my money anyway. So I'm going to cheat a little bit on my taxes. Timely illustration. You ready? Monday? It's sin, guys. No matter how much we try to rationalize it, no matter how much we try to excuse it in our own mind, it's sin. And Joseph knew it was sin. He called it sin. He said, how could I sin against God? 
How could I do that? I can rationalize this a thousand different ways in my own mind, but bottom line is it's sin. It goes against what God says. It goes against what God has laid on my heart. I see it as God sees it. It's wrong. Proverbs 15.3, we might think that I can get away with this. No one is ever going to know. No one's going to see it. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Now that verse can be either extremely comforting or extremely convicting, or both. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, watching over you, protecting you, guiding you. That's very comforting. But know that you can never do anything that no one will know about. God will. God will. And I guess when I read a verse like that, there's, I, can, I can really, I can go back and forth, and I know back when I was, when I was younger, when I, when I was dealing with issues in my life, in, in sin in my life, and I had a different view of God as some angry, punitive God at times, that can be very scary. That can, that can almost even push you towards sin, and, and, and well, if he's going to be that way anyway, I may as well go ahead with it, and the enemy loves that. The enemy loves to convince us of that, that God is an angry, punishing God. But the truth of the matter is, he is a holy, righteous God, yes. But he is a loving, graceful, merciful God. And when I think of what he's done for me, I don't try to avoid sin to avoid punishment. I don't want to sin because I don't want to sin. I don't want to go against what the God that's done everything for me asks of me. And that should be our heart. That should be our desire. Now, we talk specifically here in our story with Joseph, specifically about sexual sins, specifically about the sanctity of marriage. Joseph wasn't married, but she was. And Joseph understood that. Joseph understood that marriage was designed by God between one man and one woman, and she's a married woman. There are no exceptions to that. None. There, there are no excuses. As a pastor, even for the short time that I have, I have had people come up to me and say, well, what about my situation? What about the fact that my wife has, hasn't, hasn't been with me for two years? I, there are no exceptions. My wife and I, we don't get along, and da-da-da-da-da, and I've, 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 this, this person, she really understands me, or he really understands me. There are no exceptions. None. David made an exception in his life. He, he had an adulterous relationship. And in Psalm 51, he says what Joseph indicated here after the fact. He said, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, we see some, a couple of great examples in Joseph in our story here. Verse 10, he gave no opportunity for this to happen. It, says, it tells us that he didn't listen to her, he didn't lie beside her, or be with her. He made sure that he was never alone with her. And men, women, husbands, wives, you should never be alone with someone from the opposite sex. Ever. You shouldn't go on a trip with them. You shouldn't go in a car, a car with them. You, sh you should never put yourself in that situation. No counseling. They really need a shoulder to cry on. No, no just friends. None of this, well, they need some ministry help or, or, or uh, it's a witnessing opportunity. No, 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 no. You take someone else with you. Give no opportunity for the enemy to get in there. But also we see a great example that David wasn't doing when he fell into temptation. He, was, he wasn't where he should have been. He should have been out with his men fighting. Instead, he was back home by himself. Here we see Joseph working his way up, working hard, diligently. He kept himself busy. Saw this old proverb that, was said, that said, men are tempted by the devil, but the devil is tempted by idle men. Think about that. 
We keep our, if we're idle, if we're not keeping ourselves busy doing the Lord's work, we're tempting the devil saying, come on, I'm wide open, I'm, ga- I'm free game here. Well, as we continue our story, verse 11. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you have brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. She set a trap. And he was caught in there. It says that the other servants weren't around. Perhaps she sent them away so that it would be just the two of them. He noticed it immediately, and he runs away. It says, verse 12, it says that he went outside. If you have a King James Bible, it says, and got him out. I like that. He got himself out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, talked about that on, on Sunday as well. That the temptation, we will never face a temptation that we can't stand up against. God will always provide a way out, but we have to take it. And Joseph took it. Now, we see that she turns on him. She now realizes this is never going to happen. And so she lies about him and, and brings this thing against, first of all, against the other servants. She appeals to you know, their jealousy, this Hebrew, this one who's in charge, you know, over the top of you, the resentment that probably is there, trying to stir that up. But notice it doesn't say anything that they replied to it. I, I just, I, I'm reading between the lines. They hear the story. They know her. They know Joseph. They've seen Joseph. They're not, I, I got to imagine, they're not buying this for a minute. Well, Potiphar comes home. She lays out the story again. She even says, it's your fault for buying this Hebrew slave. Again, I have to think, based on what we just read here, that it says that Potiphar burned with anger. I have a feeling that that anger is towards his wife, not towards Joseph. He's seen Joseph. He's seen what a man of integrity Joseph is. He's, he, he understands and he's seen God in Joseph. Also, I mentioned, Potiphar was probably the, oversaw all of the executioners. And this would have been a capital offense. A slave trying to rape a, a, his master's wife, that's a capital offense. He doesn't have him executed. He has him put in prison. And not with just common prisoners. He has him put in with where political prisoners are, those that, 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 are, you know, that have done something against the Pharaoh, not with common prisoners. So I don't see this as, as, as Potiphar buying this at all. But what's he going to do? His wife has brought the accusation. But in again now, we see in Joseph another amazing character trait. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't stand up and say, she's lying, and, and try to do all of this kind of stuff. I mean, I have this, this really, and we're going to look at another one here in a few minutes, but this is one of the most difficult Christ-like characteristics that I face. Well, what do you mean, Christ-like characteristic? Well, turn to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2. Verse 19. Now he's, he's speaking here. Verse 18 tells us that he's talking to servants to be submissive to their masters, even if they're unreasonable, even if they're perverse, that word means, to, be, to submit to their masters, to, to honor God in the relationship, in the employee relationship. But he goes on, verse 19, for this finds favor or grace, same word for grace, if for the sake of, the consci- of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God or grace. Again, that word is favor is also grace. Finds grace with God. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's our example. Jesus, when, when the, the, the only righteous one, the only one who has ever been able, would ever be able to stand in front of someone being accused and, and say, I have never sinned, I have never done anything that you are saying. He uttered no threats. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And the key again is, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 21 tells us, for you have been called for this purpose. This is the example to follow. When we are treated harshly, when we are treated wrongly, we are not to revile in return. We are not to put up our fists and fight back. You might say, well, I don't like that. Well, there's a Latin term for that, and it's tough tacos. (laughs) You might not like it. But that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. In verse 24, it says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Guys, we don't have any room to argue and discuss this at all. He's bought us with a price. He paid for us. And he is our example to follow. And we see a great example of this in Joseph. Now, we're going to look, a, look ahead just a little bit. I'm, we're not going to get to this point tonight, but you know the story probably. Joseph is going to eventually become second in command in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you can answer this however you want. You can answer it honestly, or you can, you know, try to be all pious and everything. But what would be the first act you would do second in command? I don't know, Potiphar's wife? She wouldn't be taking too many more breaths, probably. That's in our flesh. But we're going to find out she's never mentioned again. Joseph never brings it up. Amazing. Amazing. Well, got to hurry up here. Verse 21? Yes, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. Again, God's favor being poured out on him. He's a man of integrity, a man of honesty. He's in the prison now, and he's now, he's still, he's a prisoner, but he's in charge of the prison. The chief jailer did not uh, supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offered or offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with these two officials, the chief chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail in the same place where Joseph was in prison. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Chief jailer, again, sees Joseph's integrity, sees Joseph's character still after all of this. He continues to be the man of God that he is. Even after 
doing this before and having this, this, this situation happen to him. He doesn't get mad at God, doesn't throw it all in and say, this is stupid, this is worthless. He continues to be the man of God that he's called, and it, go, it continues on in, his, in, the, in prison now. The chief jailer sees it, blown away by it. We're introduced, it says, that the cupbearer that is now put into prison. These two officials that were part of, of with Pharaoh as well, the cupbearer, his responsibilities would have been all the way from the vineyard all the way to the cup in Pharaoh's hand. He oversaw all of that. Another word that's used to translate, and maybe some of your translations, is butler. Somebody who is very close to, close to Pharaoh, uh, overseeing a lot of his affairs every moment, day to day, he's with him. The other man, the baker, he would have oversaw all the food. So here we have two people very close to Pharaoh, and we don't know what it is offended, that offended Pharaoh. The, it literally could mean sinned against. Perhaps there was poison found, and they were trying to figure out if it was trying to get into the food or into the, into the wine or, or whatever. We don't know. But interesting. Notice what it says in verse 3. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. Who's the captain of the bodyguard? Remember back the previous chapter? Potiphar. Again, we see here that Potiphar, Joseph has said such an impact on him. He didn't buy the story. He didn't, he didn't go along with any of that. Well, verse 5. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each man, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in the master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have, had, we have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So, here we have two dreams, and no one there to interpret it. We have the butler, the baker, but no candlestick maker, so we need someone else to shine light on the subject. Oh. Joseph is going to shine some light on the subject. A couple of things we see. Yeah, that was bad. I know. I laughed hysterically this afternoon when I thought of it, though. So that just... A couple of things, though, we see in Joseph here. First of all, we see someone, some more godly characteristics. We see, first of all, observation. He noticed that there was something wrong with these two guys. He noticed that their countenance was down. He noticed that there was something bothering them. He wasn't so wrapped up in his own problems that he ignored what, what, what they were going through. Now, observation is important. We all need to be observing one another to notice those types of things when, when we can come alongside. But it goes beyond that because so often we can, we can notice that. We have a sense that something's not right with someone and we can say, yeah, I don't, wanna, I don't really want to get involved, so I'll just, I'll just pray for them. I can tell something's bothering them, so I'll pray for them. Well, Joseph goes beyond observation. He goes into inquisition. He, he shows that he actually might actually care about what's going on with them. He asks them. He, he says, what's going on? Are you okay? What, what's the matter? I can tell something's wrong. But it go, even takes it a step further because observation and inquisition, again, leaves it, leaves it un, undone with what we are supposed to do. Compassion needs to be followed with action, and he does that. It was more than just words. It wasn't just, just hey, how you doing? And while they're saying, oh, well, you know, hey, well, great, have a good day, and keep on going. James verses two, or chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet do nothing to give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? What use is that? What use is it to ask someone, How you doing, when you really don't care? 
What use is it if someone says, hey, I'm really going through something, would you pray for me? And say, yeah, I'll do that, and then walk away and don't pray about it. What use is it if you have the the ability to help them in their situation, to bear their burden with them, and you just say, great, good luck to you. Interesting, verse 4, it says that the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. That word literally means he ministered to them. He ministered to them. Here's Joseph again. We don't have, to, we don't have time to replay the whole situation or the, what he's going through, but you know it. And he's taking the time to observe what's going on, taking the time to get personally involved, and he's taking the time to minister to their needs. Turn quickly to, really quickly, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. The King James Version says, esteem others better than yourself. Young's literal translation, I like this, it says, counting more excellent than yourselves. Counting people more excellent than yourselves. Bottom line is, it doesn't really matter who or what someone is, it's what we count them to be. Will we count them worthy of our time? Will will we count someone worthy of our service, of our our desire to come alongside them. We need to understand one another's needs and then place them above our own. Husbands, wives, understanding the needs of our spouse and placing them above our own. Parents, children, understanding the needs of others, placing them above ourselves. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understanding each other's needs. That takes time. That takes effort. And then placing them above ourselves. It says, verse 4, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Look out. That's active. We have to be actively doing that. So how do we do that practically? Well, again, we see such a great illustration of that in Joseph. We need to be observant. We need to be inquisitive. But then we need to be active. Well, quickly, verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when, you go as well, when, when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning to me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that I should have been put into this dungeon. The butler has a dream. Joseph interprets the dream. And he says, it's going to go well with you in three days. You're going to be restored to your position. Remember me. Remember me when this all happens and speak kindly of me. Now, notice one thing too, and again, really quickly, if you're taking notes. Verse 15, for in fact, I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing wrong. He doesn't mention anything about what was done individually to him by anybody. He doesn't mention his brothers. He He doesn't mention anything about Potiphar's wife. He doesn't mention any of that. That is forgiveness, gang. Forgiveness and forgottenness. It's gone. I'm, I'm here. I've been, I was kidnapped, but he doesn't implicate his brothers in any of it. I didn't do anything deserved to be here in prison, but he doesn't implicate anybody in it. Well, we move on to the next dream. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, hey, I had a dream too. I also saw in my dreams, and behold, there was three baskets of white bread on my head. 
And in the top basket, there was some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The basket, the three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh, the flesh off of you. Huh. <laughs> I can imagine, again, he's probably thinking, wow, that's a great dream you just told him. Here's mine. And then he gets the interpretation back. Not, not so good. In three days, the interpretation for him is, you're going to be killed. You're going to be executed. Notice Joseph doesn't say, hey, remember me. <laughs> he does, probably not going to do any good then. Joseph couldn't interpret his own situation. Again, I have to imagine there's, there's this continual inward wrestling going on. He couldn't interpret his own situation as to what's going on, but God gave him insight into these others. But again, in his heart, he just continues, has to keep on trusting God. We'll finish up the chapter here. Verse 20. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all the servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but had forgotten him. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. We will pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do, again, thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. Lord, what an amazing, amazing man Joseph was. Lord, what an amazing example we have when we, when we take a look at his story, when we take a look at his life, when we take a look at the characteristics in him. Lord, we, we pray that as we would turn this over in our minds, Lord, I pray that we do reflect back on this individually, personally, that, that we would draw from that, the example that he is. Lord, that we would agree with you what sin is and not try to rationalize it in our own mind. Lord, that, that we would make no excuses. And if there is sin in our life, Lord, that we would repent and turn to you because, Lord, against you and you only have we sinned. Lord, we see... Uh, an amazing example of, of how we are not to defend ourselves. Lord, you are our defender. When we are reviled, we are not to revile in our return. Lord, you are our example. And Lord, we see again an amazing example of someone who placed other people's interests above his own. And Lord, that's our heart. That's our desire. That's our prayer. Lord, make us sensitive to one another's needs. Let us be observant, Lord. It's, we're busy. we got life going on all around us, Lord, but let slow us down so that we can see what one another needs, Lord, and, and that we would inquire and, Lord, that we would act. Lord, you are our example. You, you are our strength and our, all that we have, Lord. We just we give to you. We ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week and hope to see you this weekend.